0: Good morning. I just want to give you a, a very quick update on the state of the church since we began a third worship service, uh, which is on Saturday afternoon. The last two weekends, we've had more people in in this room in worship attendance than we've ever had. Um, and I'm just so pleased it makes… the, the difference really is… Vertically speaking, it's all God's work, we're not doing anything particularly different. God's just blessing. And horizontally, you're making the difference. It takes takes time, energy, priorities, rescheduling, it takes a little sacrifice. More than anything else, it takes love for a church to grow. Um, I can't tell you how grateful I am for all of you who are stepping up in ministry. Uh, There are countless things that this church does every single week, both on this campus and off this campus, that just a handful of people, the people affected know of. The Lord certainly knows, but nobody's doing it for credit. Um, When I get here sometimes still in the… very early on a Sunday morning and I see that 12 people who are strictly volunteers have already beat me here. Already making ready to welcome the rest of you, thank you so much. And believe me, we need all the hands we can get into ministry. I'll tell you much more about this later, but it it struck me the other way that in calling so many of you volunteers, we're selling you a little short. The Bible calls you saints that have been prepared for the work of ministry. Volunteer only refers to the pay scale. I do some volunteering myself and all that means is I don't get paid for it. But when you set out to serve Jesus, when you set out to serve His body, which is the local church, which represents Him visibly on earth, that announces His good news, His death and resurrection, you may be unpaid and that makes you, in the secular world, a volunteer, but you're much more than that. You're a gift from Jesus to His church. A saint, someone set apart for him for the work of ministry and the good works that your heavenly Father prepared for you before the, before the beginning of the world. So, thank you. And if you're not serving, talk to us, okay? There's a million different things to do. There's something for every temperament. I say ministry and people think that they're going to get stuck up here under these lights. <laughs> Very few of you will. Maybe some of you. Maybe you should be up here. We have a new guitarist in the band this morning, and I'm so grateful for that. It takes all kinds, it takes all temperaments, it takes all kinds of different gifts, all different to use Paul's analogy. It takes all kinds of different members in one unified body under Jesus the head. Make no mistake, I'm not the head of the church, Jesus is. I'm just a member of it with a role to play and a service to give, but I also have needs and limitations and weaknesses that need to be supported and served by the rest of you. So, on behalf of our pastoral team and the many people who are new to our church in the last three weekends, the children you're serving, the youth you're making a difference to, all the different things, all the different facets of this church, thank you very much. I thank God for you daily, and if you're still on the sidelines and wondering whether you should get involved, come on in. The water's fine. <laughs> now then... When I was in Bible college, there was kind of this legendary professor who was very very homey, he was a little bit country in his sayings, and he was always shouting at his young charges to keep the main thing the main thing. Good advice, isn't it? And that's really, if you can keep your eye on finding out what the main thing is and doing that, you'll have a pretty good life. But one of the foibles of human nature is we sometimes lose track of what matters most. I remember reading years ago, and I sure hope it's a fake story, but it it actually fits very well with human nature. A man bought an RV, all decked out, full kitchen, bedroom, the works, and of course it had cruise control too, and he found a nice straight stretch of highway like they have in West Texas where the curvature of the earth can be seen. because it's so flat and boring, and he was encouraged to set the cruise on his very expensive RV and go in the back, and he told the officers who came to uh, pull him from the wreckage that he was making a sandwich when it all went awry and he went off the road. See the main thing when you're driving an RV would be what? Driving. Driving the RV, right? Hence the verb, drive very easy to lose sight of what matters most. Here's what matters most in life. Here's the biggest question. That question is simply this, how can I be right with God? If there is a God who made all this, and everything around you tells you that He is there, both Scripture and reason tell you that you simply aren't a cosmic accident. That it makes absolutely no sense for everything to come from nothing just because there was a lot of time for nothing to produce everything. That's nonsense. This universe is tuned and in ways that are almost impossible to describe in how small the tolerances are, that if things were just a slightest bit different in so many different dimensions, life on earth would be impossible. All of creation tells you that there is an intelligent being who set all this in motion, and your conscience tells you that as well. No matter who you are, and I've talked, one of the great things in ministry is you meet all kinds of people, and it's endlessly fascinating. I've talked to some of the meanest, in some cases some of the cruelest people that ever walked the earth, and they all have a conscience if you go into the darkest parts of the worst prisons in the world, you'll find even there there is a moral pecking order where some look down on others because they've done things that are worse. Why? Because God is a not only intelligent, He's moral, He's righteous, and you're made in His image, and both creation and your own conscience— that sometimes, as Scripture explains, approves of what you're doing, and you can walk away from a situation saying, I was right, that was good, I did the right thing, and other times you walk away saying, why do I speak? Why did I say that? I wish I could take that back. Don't you wish you had a rewind button sometimes in life, particularly in marriage? See, the thing with marriage, if it's going to work, you've got to stick around and face the consequences of the stupidity you just uttered, and then there you are. And that conscience is inescapable because that's how God made you. So, this question is the main thing and so easily forgotten, so easily pushed aside in the name of career, of enjoyment, of pleasure, of hobbies, of advancement, of making a living when you should be considering how you can make a life. And this question is at the heart of the story we read in today's portion of Luke's gospel. Look with me in Luke chapter 6. Fair warning, the story we're going to read today is culturally and historically a little bit more challenging than some of the rest we've been reading as we follow Jesus through Luke. We're reading an ancient book about written of things that happened long ago in a language and culture that was different from our own. It's a very Jewish story. On the third word of this story, I immediately encounter Judaism. Luke 6, verse 1, it says, On a Sabbath, while he was going through the grain fields, his disciples plucked and ate some heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands. But some of the Pharisees said, Why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? You see the Jewishness? Most people have no idea what the Sabbath is. And who are these Pharisees anyway, and why are they following the disciples through grain fields? I mean, that seems to be a strange thing to do. How would they know? The Sabbath is our day, Saturday. It's one of the pillars of God's Word to His people in Israel. It's one of the Ten Commandments. God told Israel, let me read it to you. God said in Exodus chapter 20, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. The Jewish week began and ended with rest. Sabbath literally means to cease, to rest, to stop. And God intended it to protect His people from overwork and on the, in their everyday life to have to account for Him. He built a culture, he built a nation around the concept that one day we rest and we give our full attention to God and in serving one another in worshiping him. And the disciples are following Jesus, their rabbi, their teacher, their Lord, and they're moving through grain fields and they do something that seems so simple. They reach down, pluck some grain, rub it in their hands. Doesn't sound very appetizing to me, but they ate the seeds. And the Pharisees asked a huge question. It has everything to do with this. Why are you breaking God's Word? You're leading these men away from God. He has told them how and when to rest and how and when to worship. Jesus' answer takes us back back into Israel's history. Jesus answered them, have you not read? And that must have stung because they had. Have you not read what David did when he was hungry, he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God, that's the tabernacle, and took and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those with him? See, there was a time in Israel's history when their greatest king, who had written many of their psalms, was on the run for his life. And he had a little misfit band of followers that went with him, and King Saul wanted him dead and had grown so murderous he had tried to kill his own son, Jonathan, because Saul knew that Jonathan and David were friends. And on the run, one day, David, in desperation, went to the tabernacle, and the priest brought out the bread from the tabernacle, which was always there to symbolize the presence and the fellowship of God with his people. God close enough to share a meal, to enjoy fellowship with His people in Israel. And the priest and David did something that seems unthinkable and very unlawful. The priest brought out the bread, and not only King David, but everyone who was with him, this little band of misfit men, ate the bread and had sustenance for the day. What's Jesus' point? This would have made everybody's blood pressure rise. He said to them, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. That's so Jewish, a lot of people can't catch the meaning. A son of man is a human being. I'm the son of a man, Les Garner, who's preaching somewhere in Mexico this morning. But Jesus said, the son of man, and he quoted, I'm convinced, Daniel chapter 7, referring to a son of man who is described in this way. To the Son of Man was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples and nations and languages should serve Him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and His kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. He's that Son of Man. He's the Messiah they were promised. He has authority, in other words. He's not only under the Sabbath to focus, to hear the Word of God, to teach the Word of God, to remember His Father. He is actually above the Sabbath. He's the Lord of it. He defines it. He tells them what it means and how to find God and how to answer this question. But they're not done. Verse 6, on another Sabbath, He entered the synagogue and was teaching, and a man was there whose right hand was withered. I love the details of Scripture. Luke was a doctor who wrote this gospel and he can't help himself, his medical training immediately compels him to notice not only the defect, but did you notice which hand it was? It's the right hand. He's probably right-handed like most of the world. And it would be tough enough to grow up or to suffer an injury that cost you your right hand, but in this world it was disastrous. There's no knowledge economy, not much anyway. There's not much a head of a household in this agrarian society can do to provide for himself and his family if any hand, and particularly his right hand, is withered. And he's in the Sabbath where he should be, hearing the Word of God. He's hearing Jesus teach, and it says, and the scribes and the Pharisees watched him, watched Jesus to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so that they might find a reason to accuse him. You ever meet mean people in church? This is as mean as it gets. The written Word of God is being taught by God's own Son, by the Son of Man who will be given glory and dominion and worship and a kingdom that will never end. The Lord of the Sabbath is teaching on the Sabbath and explaining all about it and pointing as He always did through Scripture back to Himself, telling them, I'm the one you've been reading about and waiting for all of these years, and what's their mind on? They're looking back and forth between a crippled man and Jesus saying, I bet he heals him. You hear the meanness in that? I bet he heals him. Now, where would they ever get the idea that Jesus would heal a person in physical need? Because that's what he does. You can read through all four gospel accounts. Jesus never met a funeral procession without bringing the dead back to life. Every single time he encounters a grieving family, he restores life so that they would know that he is the life and the resurrection. And the best teaching anyone could ever hear from Scripture is ignored because they're looking at Jesus. Verse 8, another trace, another sign of his deity. But he knew their thoughts. He didn't guess what they were thinking. He knew it. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Come and stand here. And he rose and stood there. And Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to destroy it? It's a good question, isn't it? You're very concerned about ceremonial law keeping. You're concerned that the Sabbath not be broken. In your mind, not because of God's Word, because the disciples had done nothing wrong. The fields had grain in them on purpose. God had commanded that some of it be left unharvested. And eating was certainly not forbidden on the Sabbath. This man has not done anything wrong. He is in desperate need. But in their ways, because they've stacked so much human tradition up on top of God's word, so much so that a famous commentary gives 39 do's and don'ts for the Sabbath. They're nowhere found in Scripture. They were rabbinical interpretations of what it meant to keep the Sabbath. And they miss the man for whom God made the Sabbath. They miss the brokenness, they miss the need, they miss the sorrow. If this man grew up this way, they miss the story of a man who maybe as a young boy hid his withered hand among his clothing because children in any age, and any culture are cruel and would have taunted him. And now the one God promised, the one who can make all things right, the one who can establish a dominion that never ends, who restores all things and can bring them back to their intended purpose, is present and willing and ready to heal, but they would say to him, go be crippled one more day. Not today. Think of the irony of that. You cannot be healed. You cannot have grace because we've set this day aside for God. That's the trouble with legalism. And Jesus looks and waits, and nobody answers. After looking around at them all, he said to him, stretch out your hand, and he did so, and his hand was restored. Wow. Has it ever occurred to you that Jesus is incredibly wise and intelligent? It's the most obvious thing in the world, but look how simple this healing was. Speaking is not forbidden on the Sabbath. They've all been doing it. This man was not told to do any labor either. What was he told to do? The hand you've learned to hide, put it out. And as he did so, came forward. Someone in my family recently hurt a tendon and... There's been surgery and a whole lot of physical therapy, and it's made me appreciate the mastery of this miracle more than I have before because the injury is very slight, but the process to get healed is incredibly laborious. It takes really smart people who went to school for a long time, and it takes a lot of tremendous physical effort for you simply to be able to do that. If you can do that, you're fearfully and wonderfully made, and God's been good to you. Jesus told this man, put your hand out, and he did. And in that moment, he was restored. Why? Because what Jesus is trying to get them to see is this, self-righteousness keeps you far from God and makes you hateful to others. See, in the answer, what do we have to do to be right with God? The Pharisees said, we have made our rules and our traditions. If we keep them, we will be right with God. If people do not keep them as we do, they are wrong and far from God and sinners and tax collectors and the worst kind of people for whom God has no love and acceptance See, every human heart perpetually stands at the crossroads between the righteousness of Jesus and self-righteousness. See, self-righteousness doesn't immediately evaporate from your life when you trust Jesus. That's the crucial starting point to becoming a Christian. When you evaluate your own righteousness and compare it to the righteousness of Jesus, and in a tender hearted moment of repentance, meaning you turn around, you turn away from yourself, and you throw yourself into His arms, you choose His righteousness rather than your own. Almost every person in the world, unless they're trusting the righteousness of Jesus, is trusting self righteousness. And it's a hard battle that most people lose because self righteousness feels so good. Don't you think you're right? Do you consciously make decisions to do the wrong thing? Sometimes, but seldom. Most people go through life thinking at every moment that they're right. That's self-righteousness. That their way of accounting for God and the world and the people He placed in it is the right way to do it. And it's the strangest thing we have over six billion people who are all right in their own eyes. And what has that produced? Chaos, war, hunger, devastation. And here's the tricky part. Everyone finds the pecking order and says to themselves, I'm not saying I'm perfect, but I'm not that guy. And that's self-righteousness. You see, they had missed the heart of the law. Jesus was tested on another time regarding all of the commandments The four that God had oriented toward Himself, the six He had oriented toward people. In another gospel, both in Luke and Matthew, Jesus was tested. Here's Matthew's version, Matthew 22. Read this with me. This was a test for Jesus. He was asked this, Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And He said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the laws and the prophets. They had failed to love God, and they had failed to love people when they said to the disciples, go hungry. And they said to the man, be crippled one more day. See, the love of God does not make people in need wait. Scripture says today is the day of salvation. If you hear his voice, come today. Nowhere in Scripture does it tell you if you hear God's voice, come tomorrow. It always tells you to come today because the heart of this story, the conflict that is raging, is identified in verse 11. It says, when all of this happened, verse 11, they were filled with fury and discussed one another what they might do to Jesus. Not about Him. Those conversations have been going for some time. It's no longer a question of what do we do about this man, but what can we do to this man? Humanly speaking, the machinery that will kill Jesus is now in motion. All because why? He looked at the Lord, he, the Lord of the Sabbath said, I am here to honor my Father and to bless and love and heal people. And self-righteousness won't have any part of it. See, some people have taken this summary of Jesus as a relief. And they said, well, I'm glad that Jesus summarized the Old Testament. I'll just work on this then. Can I tell you that this commandment, as wise and loving and beautiful and right as it is, does not help you in your own quest for God? Let me explain. Have you loved the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, and mind? Have you loved Him with everything you have? Have you consistently set your side yourself aside to love him supremely with everything you have? I haven't. You know who gets in the way of me loving God with everything I have? Me. I love me. You might not, but I guarantee you you love you. There's a reason marriage is difficult. There's a reason work relationships are clouded. There's a reason friendships seldom endure for a lifetime. Because every single person on earth is looking out for what a beautiful American saying that speaks the truth. They're looking out for number one. Number one in this case is the person speaking, not the God who made him. The second commandment isn't any easier. Love the Lord your God supremely, and the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, on what basis does Jesus tell us to do this? On the basis of being the Lord of the Sabbath, the Lord of the law, the one of who the law spoke, the one that the law used to open our eyes to wisdom and truth and the right way to live, and in the same moment show us that we cannot possibly live that way apart from the grace of Jesus. Here's the biblical answer from cover to cover. From Genesis 3 to the end of the book, when sin first appears until Jesus makes everything right, the simple message of Scripture is this, to be right with God, we need Jesus. No one else. If you're seeking to establish your own righteousness, let me tell you, in Christian love, from one human to another, from one sinner to another, you won't make it. You may get better. You'll never be good enough. God's standard is absolute perfection. The only people on earth who think they're absolutely perfect are people who somehow have been deprived of reason, who are literally out of their minds. God knows the truth. You know the truth. Your conscience tells you the truth on a day-to-day basis. To be right with God, you need Jesus. But it's a question of authority. You see, Jesus said, I am the Lord of the Sabbath in the first story, and He proved it in the second. He told them, I'm here to define rest and worship. I'm here to tell you what God intended. That's who I am because that's the question raging in everybody's mind. Who does this man think he is? He thinks he is the prophesied Son of Man. He knows that's true. That's why he's telling them, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath and proving it on a different Sabbath. And that fight for authority never goes away. I trusted Jesus with my life. I turned away from my sin and fought Him hard as young as I was because I thought my righteousness would be good enough at least for a little bit longer, and my walk with Jesus all these decades later is one continual daily choice, many times a day, between my authority and His. That's the heart of the matter, to keep Him in charge because it is Jesus that is our rest. He's our Sabbath. He's the one who can give us Sabbath rest. It is Jesus who is our righteousness, and it is Jesus who is our goodness. The love we show, the kindness we speak, the grace we give to other people has only one important eternal source that will make it matter forever, and that is Jesus. In a few more minutes, we're going to celebrate communion. It's one of those things that the Lord told His disciples to do in remembrance of Him, to take unleavened bread and the fruit of the vine in our church, just juice. So if you're struggling with sobriety, you don't need to worry about that. We look back at the cross, and people, sensitive people, continually ask themselves at a time of solemn remembrance of the cross of Christ And looking forward to his soon return, they continually ask themselves, Am I good enough to do this? And it's the wrong question. You're not good enough to do it. No one can celebrate communion in their own strength, in their own righteousness. You know why we celebrate communion? Because Jesus is good enough, He's the one that makes you worthy. He's the one that gives you His rest. He's the one that gives you His righteousness. He's the one who blesses you positionally with His goodness. And what He is to the Father, because you're in Jesus, you are to the Father as well. Years ago, I was just a young pastor, and it took me a while to figure out what was so wrong with the question. I heard a very powerful, emotional speaker who preached These amazing, powerful, kind of congregation shaking sermons, and the finish ended with this If you died right now, living the way you're living, are you absolutely sure you'd go to heaven? You have the question? If you died right now, living the way you're living, are you absolutely sure you're going to heaven? And people would rush to the altar, and people who I knew and admired, who knew Jesus evidently much better than I did, are in tears. And it took me a while in conversations with my pastor to figure out what was wrong with the question. Listen, if you died right now living the way you're living, I don't care who you are, you're not going to heaven. Here's the good news of the gospel. It has never been for one moment about the way you live. It's all about the way He lives that's your security. That's what frees you as a person who has trusted Christ, followed Him in baptism. Those aren't things to earn His favor. Those are things to announce it. This communion that we celebrate together is a celebration of the rest He has given us, of the righteousness and the goodness He has given us, of the righteousness that we display to the world. It's not ours. It's His But look carefully at that last verse. These men, in the very place that they had established to hear the Word of God, were filled with murderous rage. Luke's Greek language in which he chose to write this is very descriptive. It's the kind of blind anger that leaves cops and firefighters standing over people who are laying there in pools of blood wondering how people could ever be so cruel to each other. It was that kind of anger that filled their heart. Why? Because they heard the authority of Jesus and resisted it. And every time you hear of the authority of Jesus, you stand at a huge crossroads to soften your heart and say, yes, you will be Lord. You're not only my Savior, you will be my boss. Or to harden your heart as his own disciples occasionally did and draw just a little bit farther from him. My simple invitation is that you would soften your heart toward the Lord, that you would hear his authority announcing himself as Lord, offering to give you rest, offering to give you his righteousness, offering to make you good because of his goodness, not because of your own. And if you don't know him, if you've been putting it off, whatever your reasons may be, however noble your postponement has been, that you would bow the knee spiritually to Jesus and say, yes, Lord, I'm here. Save me. I hear your word and I obey it. And if you're already his disciple, that you would go to him humbly and say, Lord, who's really been running my life? I'm making my way through life and I just want to put this question before you. Who's really been acting like he's in charge, you or me? And that you'll deal with him according to what he shows you. Let's pray together. First, I address those who just aren't sure of their relationship with God. When it comes to being right with God, your honest answer would be that you're still working on it, you're still trying. My very simple practical invitation is to stop trying and come and rest in Jesus. To Say, yes, Lord, I've sinned, I've fallen short, you set up the boundaries and I've run past them. My conscience has told me so more, more times than I can count. I'm coming to you. Please save me. I'm turning away from that, and I'm asking you to save me. You don't need the right words. It's a per, He's a person. He's not a power to be conjured. He's not a force to be channeled. He's a person who understands genuine repentance. He knows when a person gives up on themselves and trusts Him instead. If you haven't done that, would you please, in the name of Jesus, make Him your righteousness, your rest, your goodness. Make Him your Savior and Lord. If you do, just call out to Him in prayer right now. He'll understand. And if you do, all I would ask is that, as some people did last week, you'd take that card in your bulletin and let us know. Because we want to make sure you have a copy of this Bible that tells you all about Jesus. And if you'll let us, we'd love to come alongside you and help you grow in your newfound faith and love for Jesus. And, Christian. If, like me, you've walked with Him for years and you know Him well, look at the authority issue again. Who's really calling the shots? If He's shown you that you're, you love to wrestle the steering wheel away from Him and you love to drive your own life, you consign Him as a passenger, as a helper, to be called on when needed. Would you tell him you're sorry and say you are the Lord of the Sabbath and you're the Lord of everything else, you're the Lord of me. Please forgive me. Jesus, you are Lord, take charge of me as well. Lord, thank you for your work. You can speak individually to us and the hundreds of people who will be here this weekend just as clearly and certainly as if we're only one person here. I pray that you would call those to faith who need you those who have been putting it off and hardening their heart to you, maybe feeling very noble or fearful or whatever their motivations are, I pray that they would give those delays up and trust you. And for my many brothers and sisters, probably the majority of this crowd who do know you and know you and love you well, we are, we claim you, we own you as Lord, as boss. Help us, Lord, every time we encounter your authority to have the grace to say, yes, Lord, we will. And when we forget and wrestle control away and put ourselves back in charge, thank you for the grace that welcomes us back to fellowship. Lord Jesus, reign here. Be our Lord. And as we look to the table and the cup and the bread, thank you for what you did to make us acceptable to you. We love you. Thank you, Lord. Amen.